For September 27th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 691. Hamilton Face with a Melville Booty. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like uh, are like serious participants sitting around a seminar table and discussing the texts, texts, discussing the texts of popular culture uh, from the syllabus. We like the seminar so much uh, when we uh, so much more when we show up at it together and when we don't sleep. Uh, through it because and when we actually did the reading when we actually did the reading because for reasons passing understanding the seminar is at 8 15 a.m on a monday and uh man we had a wild we had a wild rager all weekend all weekend went on a went on a bender we uh we drank uh 123 beers a piece and we uh we and and for all of them we paid seven dollars and ninety five cents because we got the cheapest kind we got the cheapest kind we could find pennies a can pennies a can i'm telling you uh no we're we're uh <laughs> we're your good friends matt rather hi that's me uh also uh professor pete fenzel professor uh professor <laughs> and uh professor mark lee professor Professor, or should I say chairman? <laughs> Thank you. Unless there's a vote of no confidence in me. We're talking about the Netflix show, The Chair, a, which is a, um, well, I'm not even sure what noun to use. It's a dramedy, uh, about academic life, um, with, uh, Sandra O. Oh playing the um Sandra O playing the the titular chair who is at the beginning of the uh at the beginning of the show elevated to the position of chair of the English department at the fictional Pembroke College and the plot of the show is uh her dealing with the kind of the administrative hassles um all the vicissitudes of of academic life and the the hassles of that position kind of focalized through the uh the well uh, the the cancellation um undeserved uh i think cancellation of a uh professor who made an inad- ill-advised um nazi salute gesture uh kind of as a joke tangential to a point that he was making in a class and this got you know captured circulated on social media and so a lot of the the plot of the show is uh dealing with the fallout from that with her personal relationship with that that professor who is a what who is a kind of uh provocative but but much beloved um you know, uh, uh, teacher up, up until, uh, he's canceled for, uh, doing the, doing the fascist salute. And, uh, at, at the same time, this is mixed with the kind of the details of the home life of Sandra O's, um, uh, Sandra O's, uh, immigrant father, her, uh, her adopted daughter and her sort of lack of uh, her unmarried status, her never, ha- never, never, or I'm not sure if she was married or if she tried to get married or something. There is a relationship, uh, in the past, but, uh, n- not anymore. And so she is a single mother, um, and, uh, is, uh, you know, dealing with all these, these things in her, her personal life. And so this is the, you know, this is the, the, like the stuff of the show and it doesn't, I mean, um, 
it it spends most of its time really in texture rather than in plot. Uh, I I don't know. Is that is that a fair thing to say, Pete? Right. I I don't feel like there are like big twists and turns and like reveals uh, in the plot. It's really more the experience of kind of living with these characters through the six half hour episodes um, that, uh, that the show, that the show is about. I don't know. Uh, Pete, have I omitted anything in my description of the chair? Uh, I guess, I guess just two things, right? The first would be that. that What? Is that all? Is that all? Uh, the two things that I would add in terms of the summary are one that, well, three things. One, she's, she, the, the chair is trying to do three things, right? She's trying to deal with her friend who's in trouble with a PR incident. She's trying to manage the problems of her department, which is kind of stodgy and having a lot of issues. But then she's very specifically focused on a specific uh, tenure case for uh, she's trying to keep a star professor who is a young African-American woman. Uh, she wants to keep this person, but the culture of the university is pushing her away, uh, as well as the whole tenure process, which is not being handled in an ethical or appropriate manner. Um, so like, so there's that, right? That's one one of the things. I guess another thing that I would add is the, the plot about the professor who quote-unquote gets canceled is a big part of the show, and it's about him failing to adequately mourn the death of his wife. Right. So like there's this stuff going on with Sandra. Oh, but there's also this guy, Bill, who is really deeply troubled and should probably be on administrative leave just because he can't function. And he's the one who gets put into the very tricky, complicated, pretty unfair. But like you have to deal with it because it's the modern world and the modern world is crazy, like PR situation. Right. Um, And then I guess, yeah, the other thing I would just I would just add the third thing is uh, is that David Duchovny is in it. And he's great. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and um, let, let me let me use that as a jumping point to tie yeah. like the, the first and third things uh, together, which is that like um, an important part of the context and the cultural moment that this show is speaking to is this all this hand wringing over the liberal arts education, humanities, right? Pembroke is uh, positioned as this like, I don't know, this is going to sound super elitist, but like second or third tier private liberal arts institution that like was maybe had some more respect back in the day, like tries to compete for faculty against the Ivies. Again, here I am sounding so elitist, but like, this is, this is what the show is about. Right. Um, so there's like kind of, you know, that sort of college and how it is not as, uh, uh, a big deal as it used to be, um, humanities and specifically not a, a, a big deal as it used to be, particularly in competition with the, you know, STEM field, science, engineering, computer science, so on and so forth. Um, Right. So uh, and then the David Duchovny piece comes in because like because the department is seen as being on, on hard times, you know, like low enrollment, low on cash, um, just generally not respected. They feel like they have to stoop to get the celebrity um, David Duchovny to come give this distinguished lecture. And it, it sounds really funny, Daddy, because it is. And that's what they call the distinguished lecture, um, and which is like a really interesting selection of David Duchovny. Right. Because he what he, he was pursuing actually a Ph.D. in English at a time at Yale, um, but did not finish it. Um, so he's like, uh, uh, you know, like sort of has these highbrow credentials, but also was in the X-Files and Californication and things that um, are not becoming of an English department. And so there's a lot going on there as well, too. So I just want to add that context, the cultural context pieces. We, we, we can pull back the curtain on this a little bit, right, Matt? We can do that, I think. Sure. 
Yeah, so pull, here's pull the, it back. Uh oh, I don't know. Dish. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm decent, Pete. But but go here, ahead and pull back the. Here's pull. the dish that you probably won't hear in other places, and I think I think probably one of the reasons why this show works out the way it does, unbeknownst to y'all, perhaps. David Duchovny, when he was a Ph.D. student at the English department at Yale, was very close friends with an up and coming academic by the name of Langdon Hammer. Uh, Langdon Hammer was my modern American literature professor. Yeah. Uh, was he? Did you ever take a class from Langdon Hammer? No, I, ne- I nearly took 125 from him, but he the the modern portion, which would have been a lot better. But the yeah. I mean, uh, but no, I missed I missed out for scheduling reasons. Yeah. But he was my wait. He was my senior thesis. He was my like second reader on my senior thesis, and so I did interact with him a little bit. Yeah, and he's like smart, but and cool, and a little bit aloof. Like he's a there's no problem. Totally inoffensive guy. Like and and solid professor, right? Um, Also, his wife is also an English professor at Yale, Professor Jill Campbell, who I also had as a professor in Restoration Comedy, which I've joked about sometimes as being like a very intense, very serious very analytical and kind of meta historical look at a bunch of plays about, you know, pooping. doing it in the back room and pooping. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, so the two of them are, are kind of great. Um, and they're the kind of professors that like, you look back on it later and you're like, yeah, I didn't appreciate them as much as I should have while I was there. But the point is that like Langdon Hammer is currently the chair of the Yale English department, which is referenced in this show. Right. So it's like and David and him were like buds back in the day. So like there's this weird sort of micro history of this show behind the scenes of like, well, why why is David Duchovny able to go on and kind of like pitch perfectly uh, play a total douche who's attempting to undermine or not attempting, but like inadvertently undermining all the efforts of the chair of an English department? Well, because he has a really good source if he wants it for like wh- who would be the most annoying person for the chair of an English department of a frou-frou university to mm. deal with. Right. Um, so I just want to throw that in there so you know that little bit of extra texture and appreciate that uh, that David Duchovny, he knows what he's talking about. I mean, here's the thing. The reason he stopped being a professor, a PhD student in English is that he was he got in a play at the drama school. Right. Which is just down the street. So like the Yale drama school, which leads directly into the profession. Right. I think he he like like he got he got sort of pulled aside by that. Sure. Right? So it's so it's not like he like up and quit. Um and then, of course, he went to the Red Shoe Diaries, like all great academics. Um, of course, he also played a professor uh, on a TV show, as you mentioned, Mark, on a, basically a softcore pornographic TV show for like seven years. <laughs> so he has a lot of undermining a- uh, academia in his resume. That's all very good natured, uh, because after all, he builds with the master's tools, as this show says. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is anyway, all kind of good people. You're, you're bearing the lead, which is that both of you, you, uh, Matt and Pete, are learned scholars. You both are yeah. products of the Yale English department. You that have bachelors true. of arts in English. Yes. English. And it colored our experience of this show a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, not, and, I, so, and in case it wasn't obvious, I was not one of those people. Yeah. I was often, and you were the one who wanted to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, you yeah, recommended it to us. Right. And so like, okay, we're on board. So I'm going to try real hard because I thought hard. that you would have very strong feelings and thoughts yes. and reactions. I do. <laughs> yeah. So let's do it. Dish. Dish. I'm just not – I'm not sure why I, – I guess like colleges are looked at as a lab, as kind of a cultural lab, and that's why they're they're culturally relevant. But it just – I don't see – it seems like don't we have bigger things to to worry about than like <laughs> – 
who's reading Emily Dickinson wrong, you know, like, uh, when, when we're going to the, when we're going to, to almost near the Carmen line in penis rockets, like, don't we, aren't there other things we should make television shows? When you're turning on Netflix, aren't there bigger things to worry about? Like the return of the great British bake. No, no, no. I mean, are you saying we're subjecting something academia to the level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve? Is that what you're saying? Matt? I mean, I'm I'm good to pivot and just talk about this the first episode of the Great British Bake Off no! for the rest of <laughs> Sorry, I blew up my mic on that one. No. It was uh, cakes. It's good. Quite... <laughs> um no, I mean it it is an it's an interesting thing to 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 be concerned with, right? With like the kind of the the politics of a um the politics of uh you know these fairly marginal institutions within institutions it seems like something that martin scorsese should make a movie about you know in the the, the same way that he like uh, the mafia i think is interesting to him as this sort of bygone all male institution and and the you know his movie kundun about um about the dalai lama uh similar to that i think like the the he he likes these kind of insular insular um you know uh uh sort of cloistered literally cloistered i guess in the case of the monks um institutions where you know they they uh appear somewhat glamorous on the outside but but can be what uh can be sort of vicious or require like hard living and sacrifice so what what i'm saying is that i want what what i want is for them to like shoot each other with firearms yeah. you know what <laughs> yeah you're not saying because i was going to say matt why do you want martin scorsese to make this tv show this this thing like amanda pete has already made it yeah i guess so <laughs> we just watched it but no you mean you want to see the like quentin tarantinoing of this where the english department is in a mexican standoff or whatever whatever kind of standoff they would determine to be based on semiotics and semantics uh <laughs> and so on and so forth I just, right I, I mean there, there is a standoff at play here right you know like they relegate the uh the old chaucer scholar into the basement or and there's just all this uh you know um uh sublimated conflict uh and trying to yeah. push people out i mean i i will say there is a war on academia the, the thing that the thing that baffles me about these things is yeah. that from my perspective there is a war on education Mm-hmm. Right. There is a war against not in the education. confines of this television show, but like no. in our lived reality, in our lived reality, there was yeah. a war against yep. education because education is seen as something. I mean, it correlates very highly with one of our political parties. And so the other political party sees it as an enemy and looks to at every turn undermine his resources and credibility and standing. Right. And like funding and all sorts of other stuff. Right. That That's the super simple version. I mean, it's, a, whole, it's also yeah. it's also part and parcel of the kind of the what lower institutional trust and kind of a war on authority generally, right? Like education being one manifestation, maybe the major manifestation of, of the kind of authority that is, that is sort of on the outs in an, in an age of political populism. Yeah. And so what it seems like this TV show has done to an extent is internalize the war on education as a sort of background anxiety, but instead shows all the people who should all be on the same side, who should all be on board with their project. And actually, one would hope would be kind of thrilled to have, you know, to be dedicating their lives to it. Of course, it's academia. You know, it's the real world doesn't necessarily always work that way or mostly work that way. You know, it's a J-O-B, right? Um, it's 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 a living. Um, but like all it's all of the people who should be on the same side 
who are all splintering it off and are always on, at odds with each other. And it, well, the conflict, it's a, yeah. Right. It's yeah. a, it's a living for these people, right? Yeah. It's, it's not a living for the small army of graduate student instructors and, and, you know, yeah. adjunct instructors who, who are, are barely in this show also. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but. there, there are a couple of graduate students, but it seems like they live pretty charmed lives for say, you know, versus what the actual life of a, of a graduate student is. Yeah, it's interesting the eight the eight or so people who make up the tenured faculty of Pembroke College, right? Like <laughs> are like they're they're, they, they are lottery winners, you know. They're <laughs> like they are living the dream, you know. They are six-figure earners in a fairly low cost of living uh market. You know, they get to do uh they get to do this sort of vocational thing all the time and they don't have to they don't have to drive around between, you know, 17 different two-year colleges teaching freshman literature and composition uh and you know, I don't know, grading 500-word five-paragraph essays, hundreds of them uh, one after another after another after another in a twilight zone like uh, you know, deluge of of uh, since the dawn of time, mankind has struggled with questions of divinity. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> in- but that's not their baseline, though, right? Their baseline is you know wherever they were at the height of their careers, and you know being respected um, as authoritative voices on the English language. So they're comparing that against like you know these uh, real and perceived slights. Right. That yeah. they're a person there that they're all of their worth is being attacked by these new faculty, by these woke students who demand, you know, increased diversity and I don't know, the ability to perform Hamilton like raps in a Melville. <laughs> I read some some of this is yeah. I mean it's also the the lower is it Hamilton face with a with a Melville booty, is that what it is? <laughs> uh, how how does a White sperm whale, son of a no, I, I don't know, no. I can't even do it. Um, the uh, th- some of this is co- colored with me. Like I, I read two academic novels fairly recently that were great. Um, the uh, they were by uh, the novelist Julie Schumacher. And they were called Dear Committee Members, which is an epistolary novel told entirely in the form of letters of recommendation. Uh, written by a, an English faculty member, um, <laughs> about various, about various things, some very serious and some absurd. Um, and then, uh, a follow-up novel with the same character, uh, called The Shakespeare Requirement, which is a, a kind of a more traditional narrative, or I, I don't know what's traditional, a, a third person narrative, uh, about that person who wrote all the letters of recommendation being elevated to the chair of a, um, of an English department and kind of dealing, dealing with the politics. Those novels were about the academic departments and academic politics. And they were, they were like some in-group hot drama, you know, and, and this, I, I guess the, the, the circling back to, to, my first thing, why make a show about an English department? The, the, I guess the point that I wanted to make was that it's, it's not actually about, it's not actually about the realistic, um, you know, problems and, and, uh, what issues of, of literary studies or of, um, you know, the kind of academic institutions, right? These things I think are standing in for, these things are standing in as sort of useful metaphors for different kinds of cultural phenomena and cultural shifts that, um, 
you know, that the show wants to wants to examine, yeah. one of which is the just the decline of decline of humanities the decline of the influence of of humanities gen- generally and the kind of the the um what grieving process or the the you know i don't know the dislocations and the kind of uh humiliations that that uh that decline creates among you know people who think of themselves as being owed more prominence than they have these days yeah, I'll try to zoom out one, one step further and say like all this this stuff that you're talking about in terms of, you know, the, the the English department and all the conflicts within and all the conflicts, particularly there, right? That's a stand in for or it is just communicating the broader theme for all the conflicts in this TV show, which is about interpretation and misinterpretation, mm. right? You know, kind of like from the from the core of it, like interpreting and misinterpreting texts, right? You know, the I, th- I personally think that the undergraduate spouting, not spouting nonsense like, oh, the, the whale is a symbol for white supremacy. Um, that's not supposed to be like, oh, head nod. Yeah, these kids are so woke. No, I think they're supposed, that's supposed to be um, uh, seen as something to be mocked, right? Like they are misinterpreting um, the literature. Um, the characters are misinterpreting each other and their motivations uh, kind of at, you know, at, at every twist and turn, right? We're both in the professional context and really in particular um, with uh, Sandra O's character, the chair's home life. Right. And you see that with the cross-cultural adoption. You see that with uh, the cultural divide with her Korean-Korean grandfather. Right. And then kind of the the, the language barriers that become erected around that. Um, I'm probably missing a bunch of others as well, too. But that's kind of like my very pithy uh, way to kind of globally sum up what we see. Wait, in the show. Interpretation, Mark, interpretation. We haven't gone into that at all. Can you can you just dig in uh, a little bit? Because it's it's. You know, she, there is kind of this whole personal life side of the show that is not, uh, that we haven't addressed. We've addressed the kind of the satire of, of academic life, but not, but not necessarily the kind of the stuff in the personal life of the, you know, um, of Sandra O, oh, her father, her daughter, you know, and these things that are, uh, kind of progressing along a, a parallel track on the, um, you know, during the six episodes yeah. of the show. Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And I'll, I'll, before I start to reel off some of the specific things that happen in this, like um, this, the, the, I want to just briefly throw out this, uh, some thoughts on tone. This through line here went really whipsawed back and forth from this like pathos and darkness uh, to uh, for kind of uh, comedy uh, and, and you know affection. Uh, um, and it was it was it was jarring. It was like pushed me to the levels of comfort uh, to push my comfort levels certainly um, because really I basically thought something bad was going to happen. Like Pete's you know life of pie <laughs> uh, yeah. conundrum. Um, like something really bad was going to happen to this adopted daughter because there was a lot of trauma and, and uh, a lot of kind of you know pain in these relationships going on. But it doesn't end quite uh, quite in that way. Um, so okay, so here's Sandra O's character, like the titular chairs. Um, family life going on, right? She is this uh, uh, Korean American. Uh, let's go with that Korean American academic. Um, at one point, she's engaged to another Korean American man. I think also in academia um, because of various, you know, um, interpersonal career, all the stressors that that you have in that sort of life, particularly with I think travel. Um, they break up, um, and you know, and and uh, Sandra, the chair's father, right? The the, the Korean grandfather. Um, is there as this kind of avatar for these, uh, you know, what he, you know, traditional Korean values, like expectations for uh, Korean women to get married 
um, have children or kind of have like that, you know, idealized nuclear family that, well, you know, all cultures have that, but um, in Korean culture in particular, it's just, uh, it, it is um, strong to the point of being toxic, I would say. Um, so she doesn't go down that path. Um, she devotes herself to her work. Um, uh, it, you know, doesn't have uh, a, a husband, adopts, I believe she's uh, ethnically Mexican, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the show hints at a lot of just estrangement uh, going on there, right, between uh, the daughter and the mother, um, which and, and an important backdrop for that as well, too, uh, which is worth a, a brief digression into, is the fact that the, the adoption among Koreans is a very, very touchy thing. Because uh, in the after the Korean War, lots of Koreans were adopted from Korea by families in the West, and particularly the United States. Um, and Koreans look at this with uh, uh, shame and embarrassment. Uh, and there's all sorts of kind of scandals going around this as well, too, because um, uh, a lot of those children were kind of like, uh, for lack of a better word, trafficked or you know pressured into uh, the parents were pressured into putting up their children for adoption um, in uh, less than above board. Uh, ways. Um, so uh, all that is to say that, you know, again, the traditional grandfather character in this, you know, just is not thrilled <laughs> with this arrangement, right? And um, language plays an important part of, of what we see how all this dysfunction play out here because um, the daughter um, is seen as portrayed at the beginning is not understanding Korean, even though Korean is spoken at home because the, the, grand, the grandfather um, speaks uh, Korean uh, with the mother at home and tries to speak Korean with the daughter, with the granddaughter as well. And, and just like, you know, that um, communication is just not happening. Communication is breaking down. Um, the relationships are all very strained um, throughout. Um, it does come to an interesting kind of uh, conclusion at the end, by the end of the series, which is revealed that um, the adopted uh, uh, Korean daughter um, has learned some Korean along the way and can actually understand uh, some of what uh, her Korean mother and, uh, and 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 grandfather are saying to each other. Um, so I, I've rattled off a lot of kind of just like the, the character arc pieces of the kind of all that home life. Oh, the one important thing that I forgot to mention as well too is that um, the professor we've been talking about who is uh, canceled because of the ill-advised Nazi salute. Um, uh, the chair, uh, Sandro's character, becomes romantically in, uh, uh, involved with him, and and he. Uh, uh, because he's on leave, winds up like you know providing childcare and uh, strikes up a, a very strong bond uh, with the daughter as well. So um, I, I, you know you can kind of fill in the interpretation and, and misinterpretation. He also, of, he's uh, kind of like the, all of that. He's yep. the kid whisperer, you know, yeah. like he yeah. he kind of manages to break through to her in a way that that Sandra O doesn't, you know. Right, right, right. Because she's like constantly misreading, misinterpreting uh, what her daughter is trying to do, but he reads it. He, he just like gets it spot on there. Um, did I miss anything there in terms of like just kind of like the the um, the nuts and bolts of what what happens to these characters? And is am, am I trying to am I is is it becoming clear a little bit other ways in which the, kind of the interpretation and misinterpretation plays out through this? Yeah, I think so. I think I wish that I had been thinking about it this way because you say that, Mark, and it's like a light going off in my head because I wasn't mm. thinking about it that way while I was watching it. And I ca- feel like I probably would have gotten a lot more out of it if I was watching for that stuff because one of the things – so, okay. So I had a lot of trouble watching Scrubs back in the day uh, and I had a lot of trouble watching Scrubs because I worked with <laughs> medical students, right? I I, re- I was an admissions officer for a medical school and a residency program. And so like I was at a medical school every day at a hospital. And so when I saw Scrubs, it like wasn't funny. 
a lot of the time, right? Um, and even in scrubs, though, like I, I'll say uh, I'll use this phrase tipping the hat right to mean scrubs lets you know when it's being funny and when it's being serious. There are a lot of shows that whipsaw back and forth between funny and serious things, but they give you little clues in tone of voice, in style of performance that I think people pick up subconsciously, but that I think as a performer you can learn to do that uh, let you know whether the thing that you're seeing is something that should be that it should be laughed at or not, or that it, it, the pieces of the puzzle fit together best if this is the part that you laugh at, in particular because laughter is a response to, and here I am quoting my my first improv teacher again, uh, laughter is the response to the surprising and the non-threatening, right? It's that people don't tend to laugh at jokes that threaten them personally, right? Um, that you can, and that you can read that in a lot of ways. And I think they're mostly correct, right? Which is if you're of a particular sort of disempowered or marginalized kind of group, jokes about you are not going to be funny because they are threats, right? Um, but similarly, right? If, if there's a joke, a lot of young people like to joke about dying, uh, in a different way that old people like to joke about dying, right? Like it's a different sort of humor that you have to do because certain parts of it are not so funny. Uh, and certain parts of it are, are, you know, they don't they don't know, uh, you know, they they don't know or they know too much. Right. And this isn't a show that tips the hat a lot. Yeah. Like and that was the thing that left me a bit lost. The only the reason I glommed onto David Duchovny is because he tips the hat. He's very clear as soon as he shows up that, oh, I'm a joke. Right. I'm absurd. I am in I am not actually playing what I would be like if I were to be asked to do this. I am a parody of what a guest lecturer for an English department might be like, right? And I think maybe just familiarity with his previous performances uh, kind of tells me that. And with Sandra Oh, she is so like empathetic and, and you watch her kind of suffer through everything so much that it's really hard to tell if any of it is supposed to be a joke or if it's really just a very, very grim prognosis. Like, again, I was totally life of pieing this whole show. I really thought the tiger was going to bust through the wall and eat everybody in that English department. Martin by the Scorsese. Martin Scorsese <laughs> should have made this show, right? And they go out yeah. in a hail of gunfire. But like, with, you know, with, uh, it, Layla playing uh, the instrumental track. <laughs> it is a big, up. it is a big real issue that these universities that are, supposed to be, you know, bastions of, uh, you know, a combination of free thinking and kind of creative problem solving remains so entrenched in old racist divides, especially in terms of who works there and who has prestigious, well-paying jobs there. Um, and you could go into that forever and talk about why or why out that might be or what might work or what might not work. And this show does a little bit of that, a little bit, a little bit of attacking the problem, uh, not not really a great deal of solving it. But that's not really the kind of show it is. And also, if they knew the solution, they would probably be do ba doing better things with it than making a show on Netflix. Mm. <laughs> but uh, but the point being that, like, you know, it's a really serious problem that this black professor is, you could tell from the beginning, going to be denied tenure by her curmudgeonly older colleague and the thing you don't know is why right which is that he's not doing it out of spite because his own wife was denied tenure and he thinks his wife is smarter than this woman right and like and it's a there's an age thing and there's an insecurity thing and there's this weird history that he doesn't tell anybody about that's totally unfair um and oh, yes i forgot it's about that also, detail 
Yeah, but no, he's also yeah, yeah, yeah. he's in general kind of just mourning. He's you know feeling a lot of loss about you know his his prestige and the the humiliations of his professional decline yeah. and the humiliations of the decline of his body and old age and the humiliate yeah. like these you know and it's not. Right. And is sort of doing this is in this job where he can, you know, he can visit his displeasure upon the the even even less powerful. Um, For for those who haven't seen this, by the way, like the the situation here is like, you know, uh, he gets literally upstaged in a very dramatic way in the lecture hall. Right. Where their classes are combined. Um, and then like, the young black professor uh, brings in, gets the students to perform the aforementioned uh, Hamilton raps about Moby Dick. <laughs> which are which are not bad, but which it's like, yeah, if this were a project for the th- if we're a project for the theater department, then it would make total sense. Like, of course, you could do something like that. Right. And I guess if it's a project for the English department, sort of. But like it's more along the lines of it feels a little bit more lean on me than uh than college but i mean who knows i don't it's college was a long time ago and i'm sure when i was in college i thought i was older than i was but the main gist of it is like i because all these other issues are so serious like there's a there's a scene in this movie in which like this man is unironically and sadly you know forced to wear depends because he has become incontinent and he like mourns his youth and his functioning body right I, I, I destroyed the world like a colossus, which, as you all know, is a quote from the military advisor from Civilization Two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I digress. Now, the point is that, like, with all this happening, when that student says in the class, the whale in Moby Dick is a metaphor for white supremacy. I don't know whether I'm allowed to laugh or not. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, the show I don't does not know tip whether they're there. joking. But wait, because, what do you, yeah. what do you, what do you do with that, Pete? Though, like, you're. I mean, I don't know. I was when I was a graduate student. I was a, a English teacher for for half a second there for one semester. I had a, a great time, and though I didn't teach Moby Dick, it's not it's not really my jam. Um, like, you know, what would you do with that? That's something that's sort of off the wall, but it's kind of well intentioned. You know, like, yeah, pra- practically speaking, you know, pr- practically speaking, what do you do? And I feel like she's kind of at the brainstorming stage of I, I, de- I don't know the the she's she's dealing with sort of novices and and like trying to trying to excite them and get them you know just kind of get the the motor running a little bit they're kind of warming warming up the car like and i, I don't know i i i get the fact that i'm kind of the uh, you know going on and on about it i felt really ambivalent about that scene well that's uh, so did i as i didn't well, even think until know? now that it was like something that was supposed to be absurd i thought that was just an english class right and like cuz the answer is the reasons that you would think that are pretty sophisticated and have to do with anchoring right and psychological phenomena and also i mean you what you you could get into the whole idea of you know dialectics and you know transcendental signifiers and stuff where it's like um, are you actually identifying a sort of standalone scientific factual narrative, right, about the way the world works? Or are you like anchoring on a series of symbols that also connect to a series of symbols that are repeating another series of symbols? And your conviction in that your particular reading of it is the one is more of a happenstance of who you are and your social circle than it is of like its underlying truth. 
Or, right, on top of all of that, is it just availability bias? Like you just came from a class where you talked about white supremacy. So cognitively, you're going to think everything's about white supremacy. So this is also white white supremacy. But then again, in America, if so much is about race, is anything ever not about race is a hard to answer Mm -hmm. question. So it's like so it's actually like this is this is this is a show where. I feel like you could go either way with it, where you could go into the things that are absurd and seriously talk about what is it in the interpretation of them that makes them so thorny and challenging. Or you could say these are absurd and you can laugh at it, which would in turn kind of uh, reveal some sort of underlying truth that would have to be in the joke that you make. Right. Um, which, you know, maybe truth, whatever, truth, quad truth, even if it's abs- I mean, it, the the it's funny, Mark, because the, the this show opens up with this lecture on absurdism, which it doesn't really get too deep into. But then so much of the show is absurdist upon reflection. Right. Mm-hmm. In the sense mm-hmm. that, like so many of the mechanisms, the social mechanisms that are turning um, are unaware of their arbitrariness. Right. Like, why is it that when Sandra O oh goes to. The department who goes to the dean, they get to make a decision about whether she gets to be department chair and they say it's good for the university if she does. But then she goes to the department meeting and then they get to take a vote. There's no vote in the other meeting. This meeting, there's a vote. Right. And now she doesn't get to be department chair anymore. Right. (laughs) And then that's because she hurt everybody's feelings. And it's like those two systems coexisting with each other has a really deep absurdity to it. But again, I didn't know watching the show. I didn't partly because I care about the study of English. And was frustrated that the actual uh, lectures were not good, like they weren't interesting or high quality. They were kind of deliberately uh, cliche, bad in cliche ways. Um, but again, pointing out what you're talking about, Mark, misinterpretation, right? Like people are there. There are very classic sorts of misinterpretations that are being trotted out in like all of these different mock lectures. I just sort of felt attacked, right? <laughs> But but by the English in it, which is not what this is about at all. And I'm just sort of be, and also by like, you know, the dead wife, which is super sad. And like I got I'm a little tender, you know, in the age of covid about people like losing their kids, losing their families. Oh, oh you're talking about feeling attacked and the kind of the, the tonal ambiguity here in the show, not to be attacked. Like, again, going back to the 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 storyline of the child really pushing back and rejecting her parent. Right. Oh, yeah. That is so raw. Yeah. Oh, as, as a new scene, parent, right? Oh, man. I mean, that scene was so unfair, right? Well, no, sorry. The first scene was so unfair. The scene where she there's nothing. This is the first scene. The scene Re- where refresh my memory. What, like, which which scene are you afraid? Because it's been a couple of weeks since I've seen. So, Matt, I don't know if this will ring true to you, as you don't have kids, and of course, our kids are very young. But I feel like this was like a classic sort of real life kids meets fictional kids scene, where the care the nanny or whatever the prospective nanny is on the toilet and the little girl goes into the bathroom and like talks about her genitals like her pubic area and like and like says a bunch of rude things to her right and this kid is what like five like how old no i think it's about to be older than that maybe like eight oh oh really oh she's eight 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 seems uh, seems old but like yeah so in that in what late edible childhood yeah and it's like and and the the nanny just quits she's basically like there's no boundaries in this home i can't do this i'm leaving on one hand that's what kids are like especially really young kids they don't have filters because they don't know and because their brains haven't developed now granted my kid is one and a half right so his relationship with not having a filter is different than this kid's relationship um but like 
you know, on the other hand, this is a real thing that happens. Like there are certain kids that are more challenging to deal with than other kids, especially regarding stuff like the bathroom. Right. And like that's just a reality. And when you're trying to staff people to those kids, you have to make certain. And again, I shouldn't go into this because this is my wife's profession. But like there are certain rules and like levels of comfort that need to be observed with regards to like what's your level of comfort about being in a bathroom with a child right like this is all real stuff so on one hand it's like oh the nanny quit because the kid was being a kid on the other hand like this is a difficult kid with special needs of some sort and it's really hard to find care for her you know and it's just hard to find child care in general which of these interpretations do you carry forward into experiencing the show but mark i interrupted because i mean you must have had so many different levels of like feeling like the show was talking to your experience um but that was the scene that jumped out to me as like oh just just the child care situation is just crazy in this yeah that's what wasn't i was thinking that's a good one though but again it's it's been a bit since i've seen the show but there's basically like you know very explicitly you know the daughter saying like i have something along the lines of like i hate you mom or like you're not my mom or or that's the nightmare something something to that effect yeah yeah and and that that, again that that ties into all you know not just like you know, like fairly quote unquote typical parenting situations, but also all of that emotional historical baggage of adoption in the Korean context oh. as well. That's just like, oof, 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 oof. Yeah. So I felt like, so this is a show that has a ton of gut punches and you should know going into it that there are gut punches in this show and you should be in a frame of mind where you're willing to deal with the gut punches, which maybe I wasn't in just because I'm feeling fragile lately because of COVID and everything that's happening. Well, and this seems um, to, I mean, this seems to be like, this was really, it's, it's interest. Like my, my, um, I, the the impression I was I was left with is kind of one of a mess, you know, and like the mm. resolutions, such as they are, are very messy, right? Like nothing is is uh, nothing is tied up neatly, and like and you know, characters at times when they're when they're called upon to like articulate the worth or value of something, like. Um, kind of rise to the occasion you know the joke i made oh this is a good point the joke that i made to you guys was that this the the problem with this show is that it needs more aaron sorkin you know and i i would have liked some like rapid fire walk and talks and speak and and some speechifying you know i would have liked some very uh you know i I would have liked some rhetorical empty calories uh i would have liked these people whose job is you know managing a relationship with the English language <laughs> to have a little more facility uh, <laughs> with deploying the English language to, you know, um, to good effect. Uh, right. Like, um, well, there's, there's two key parts of this, at least kind of top of mind. Right. One is when uh, the canceled professor has a, uh, a quote unquote town hall, right. Where he just like stands up and like, you know, addresses directly, all the students who want him to be fired or, or whatever, right? And he like starts to make some good points and just like kind of veers off and 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 just mm-hmm. uh, makes hash of the whole thing. And the other one is when Sandra Oh um, just declares the whole uh, um, termination proceeding to be a farce, and it's like you know this is all a big joke, and you know you all should be ashamed of yourselves, sort of thing, right? And like she kind of like makes some good points, but is like flustered and stammers. And just kind of like throws her hands up in the air. The other, you know, Bill's Bill's sort of defense of himself where he's like, you know, I was thinking this morning as I was brushing my teeth or whatever, like we were looking 
we're on the bit. We fall in love with stories. Well, hold on. There, are, there are a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of English literature professors who don't deal with things that you would recognize it as stories. Like there's still especially the Beckett professor. Yeah, right. Who he is. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I, I haven't even I thought about that. Stories about two guys standing there doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like, follow up with stories about two old men at after the end of the world and their parents in trash cans talking about <laughs> killing themselves. I yes, in, I fell in love with three stories, three of, about stories about disembodied lips. Uh, <laughs> you know, going through, you know, Nobody just knows what you're talking about, speaking a stream of consciousness. Fell in love with stories of a of a woman rocking in a chair while a recorded voice plays on the soundtrack. Anyway, I just. I just I, when I was a child, I just fell in love with a story in which a Nazi turns into a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, these are all the stories that are in the school of literature that Bill is a professor of, right? Which is that he does like modern theater and it seems to be – and him and David Duchovny both specialize in this, right? <laughs> yeah, he does Beckett. And, yeah. he, he does like Beckett, yeah. like Samuel Beckett. Yeah. And then like – yeah, there's also yeah. this like absurdism yet, you know, what – rhinoceros is ionesco right and then yeah, yeah, yeah. and then like uh then then oh we can talk about ubu roi again we did podcast. we already did it's talk like, about ubu roi <laughs> shoot um <laughs> Right. That uh, his, you know, his sort of defense of this thing and like this is what he's coming to, you know, this is what what he's coming to the um, to the hearing with, you know, I guess he does have a more a, a more um, thought out statement, but it's like in an envelope. Uh, and it's, I don't, I don't want it to be in an envelope. I you know, you got to write that, like do, do the hard thing, like write the difficult speech and, uh, and give it to the actor to, you know, to deliver. So I, you know, I wanted that even, even though I don't know, I, I find, uh, as a, as someone who's a really big enthusiast of the West Wing back in the day and could, could probably quote probably to this day quote large swaths of it back at you and 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 probably would unbidden to the to the point of annoyance and like real social awkwardness um i find that style you know i find the the kind of like the the rapid fire banter like um style of of aaron sorkin like less nourishing you know as 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 time goes on um it's the i don't know what it is it's it's a great deal of complexity and and i guess what what you long for what i long for anyway the the more the more time passes is the simplicity on the other side of the complexity but the uh the the yeah it just doesn't but i i felt like just as a satisfying dramatic artifact you know um it 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 reminded me a lot of plays that I read in the 2000s when I was a reader of the, when I was a reader for a, for a regional theater, for a Lort theater, um, reading in the literary department and like writing coverage of plays and recommending certain things to be, um, you know, recommending certain things to be, uh, uh, uh you know, to, to, to be produced. And that, that like, there was this sense, this sort of, this style at the time that was this kind of magical realism, kind of like 
genre uncategorized, uncategorizable, like comedy tragedy, sort of highly poetic, you know, symbolic, uh, sort of thing. So maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe what I'm missing is not that it should have been written by Aaron Sorkin. It should have been written by, by William Butler Yeats. You know, (laughs) (laughs) who was who was really just the king of that style, you know, that that like very high rhetorically um, symbolic, you know, kind of magical, magical style. And that like, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I got a couple of uh, kind of uh, retorts to uh, the points you brought up. Retorts. All all very good. Yes. Yes. Retorts. Oh, my God. I'm going to get denied tenure. (laughs) <laughs> first the uh the you know lamenting that those you know, those big moments there don't have these sorkin-esque monologues of like you know beautifully crafted english language well like the show was all about inadequacy right just like, everybody here is, is like really not up to the task the various tasks <laughs> that they've been uh put up to but mark um, everybody's always not up to the task at the beginning of the show but by the end they've learned everything <laughs> <laughs> The uh, therapy, yes, and, and uh, different types of shows, yes. But the other one, is, and so to this point though, is um, for the show not having uh, you know good, you know, a lot of resolution, and a lot of things are left open ended. I, 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 by and large, tend to agree, except for the important point of what happened to the titular chair and her title, which is that she's no longer the chair at the end, which I thought was a really great twist there, right? It brought some resolution to that, right? She did not like the job. She only took it for, you know, um, kind of superficial reasons. Um, and she finds a way out of it, you know, rather than like, you know, set her up for seasons two, three, and four to continue to grind uh, in this uh, horrible bureaucratic uh, nightmare that she's gotten herself into. She gets to get back into the classroom and really get back to her roots and what really made her fall in love. And she's, ta- and she's talking about Emily Dickinson. Yeah, you know? Dickinson. It's all about Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of provocative questions asked in the classroom scenes that are not answered at all in, in the thing, right? Like at the end, you know, she says, why, why is hope the thing with feathers? And they talk about like birds and flight and sort of like, you know, escaping gravity, the students do. Then she said, but then she actually quotes, um, she quotes the poem to the end is like asked and, you know, hope asked not a crumb from me. She's like, what does that even mean to her undergraduate students? And it's never answered. That's one of the more interesting things. In the first lecture, the, the, um, the relationship between fascism and absurdism. What, what, you know, what does that even mean? It gets completely derailed. And then like she, she's, for whatever reason, Sandra Oh is teaching Audrey Lord and, uh, and puts the the famous um, kind of aphorism of of Audre Lorde, the 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 master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, up on the board, and says, you know, we have these slogans in our lives, and very often we don't think past, you know, the kind of the facile meaning of the slogans. Now that you've read the essay. You know, from which that 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 is you know, which has that as its title. Like, what what do you think? Like, has your understanding been uh, deepened um, of the kind of the meaning of this, like you know, quotable quote? And it's not answered in the show. And these are <laughs> these are such huge these are missed opportunities, you know. Uh, and anyway, like, and it because it's not. I don't know, Pete. I, in as we were, you know, as we were just. Um, 
chatting about it online as we were watching it you said like hey it's nice when every show comes with a little uh comes with a little english class that like d- explains what the theme of the show is it's a little built-in down nabby moment every yeah. every time but it's I, I feel like they're not i feel like they're less satisfying than, oh you don't that. like those you don't well, no, like no, no, the no. Good, i like the i like them i just feel like they weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily carried out like let me explain oh, no, i'm no. like a, yeah. i'm like a little bear uh, 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 they weren't sorry i'm sorry they weren't like cashed out is what i mean i'm like You're, a little I baby bird i want my if food they were, i was saying i was saying they would be good if they were in the show oh yeah and they kind of aren't Right. And that's what you're saying. So, sorry, no, yeah, continue. it's because they, what, what is in the show is not really cashed out in a, you know, in an intellectually serious way. Right. And all of these, you know, all of these professors are going on and on about how great Chaucer is, you know, about how great Melville is. And, you know, so they, they what they're arguing. You know, they, in their arguments, they have recourse to the idea of like the intellectual life is a good, you know, that, the, that there is the, there is a life of the mind. It's, it's sort of non-material. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a higher good, a much higher good than the good of these, you know, g- g- grasping Zoomer students, right? Who are, who are little materialists, you know, who care about who's getting hired. And promoted and who's, who's getting paid what, you know, who care about, uh, um, all this, this stuff that is not, that is not the kind of the idealistic life of the mind. Now you, you could probably argue either side of that divide and you could probably critique either side of that divide. But for, for champions of the life of the mind, I, I want some life of the mind, you know, uh, like I, w- I want some actual life of the mind that is more than like I just love poetry so much. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a real, it's a real tell don't show kind of, uh, kind of attitude. You know, and I don't know. It's it's because uh, people who are serious, serious scholars of literature will just read and like be. Um, you know, have like profound experiences with, with works of literature and like some, I guess Bill gets at that a little bit. Um, you know, he, he describes, um, you know, one's relationship with certain works of literature that for which one has a particular affinity as being like a long-term relationship as being a rewarding, uh, you know, and very kind of nourishing, um, relationship and i guess like that's that's my experience of of great great literature uh you know i find it sort of nourishing and i guess that that there there wasn't anyone really getting that that nourishment anyway i'm sorry i feel i feel like i'm being uh, negative for the sake of uh not for the sake of being no 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 no, no, mark you're just trying to say something mark yeah yeah i mean that that criticism is totally warranted though right again because of the the specific backgrounds uh, academic backgrounds that you guys uh bring to this which which i don't have at all right like i think i took like one english class and it was like on like nonfiction prose writing right it was not about like you know chaucer or any of that kind of stuff how was it right so uh, what uh, it was fred streeby's writing class i think we've actually name checked that um on this podcast before uh, and it was great um really like deconstructed my writing and, and and built it back up to there's just the the master of the english language uh, which you hear before you right now and can read on overthinking.com anyway um <laughs> um the question is that like you know this this is 
this is a hard thing to portray on screen. Yeah. Uh, in 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 a especially at the pace of which we're used to seeing stories unfold unfurled before us on screen, whether it's on television or in the movies. Well, feature versus uh, um, um, uh, uh, serialized storytelling. Um, can you point to an example of a movie or a TV show where this is done well, where you kind of actually have the time to uh, experience this in a visual format? Well, yeah, what is, what is like a very textual and internalized sort of thing? The guy, the guy in 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 uh, basic training, uh, reciting the St. Crispin's Day speech uh, in front of his drill instructor, while Danny DeVito looks on in Renaissance Man. It, it's not the worst. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, the, not the worst exemplar of this and it also contains a hip hopera uh where he really he really badly misscans this uh this above all to thine own self be true um re- uh, uh, rendering it this above all to thine own self be true which is wrong and and really mangles the sense of that line uh which is this above all to thine own self be true uh the you know but but anyway never mind i i come not to not to criticize renaissance man i come to praise it um for someone (laughs) saying the saint crispin's speech in the rain while everyone else is doing push-ups drop down drop down and give me 50 you know says the stereotypical drill instructor drop down and give me 50 hey you private stand up you're learning that shakespeare from danny devito let's hear some of that shakespeare while we're doing our push-ups let's hear some shakespeare today is called the feast of crispian he that outlives this day and kind of strings swell on the track. It's, you know, it's, it's probably a bad example. Pete, you have a better one, I'm sure. Well, I mean, the, the on the nose example is a good, the good place where it does it 170 million percent every single episode, right? Oh, where they, wow. where they literally have a lecturer who gives you a philosophy lecture, right? About the moral premise that is being tested in the show that you're watching. I mean, I didn't get too deep into that show. Like I watched the first season, um, but like, I think that's the whole that's like the framing device, right? Or like a big part of the framing there, device. Yeah, there is and there's a moment in in almost every episode where where uh Kristen Bell who like, you know, is supposed to be a terrible person but is gradually kind of morally educated through her um through her uh relationship with this character with her her philosophy professor sort of realizes that the lesson of the week is actually a lesson for for her this week and when she she's about to do something she goes oh damn it like i can't act in the bad in the bad way that i wanted to act because now i understand this and that 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 is close to it where you kind of realize that it's you know you kind of hear the ideas speaking to you you know and and it is it's hard to it's hard to portray the the bet if you're so i guess there's a couple methods right one method is to literally have it if you have a thing about school you can have a literal class and i think probably the best scene like this the one that that I felt like did the most that I've seen is the chirality lesson in the first uh, season of Breaking Bad. Like every once in a while, Walter White in Breaking Bad gives a lecture on chemistry. He doesn't do it a lot, but when he does, it tends to be very powerful and very like deeply, deeply related to what's happening in a sort of passionate way. And it also tends to be relatively sophisticated science, right? So then the idea of chirality is that you have two different compounds that have the same molecular makeup with regards to the number of atoms of a particular type that are in the molecule. But because uh, 
compounds have shapes as well as quantities, right? And and the same distribution of quantities of atoms in a molecule can be oriented in more than one shape, potentially. Chirality, you know, speaks metaphorically to the right hand and the left hand, right? Which are the same, but are different, right? You can't put a left-handed glove on a right hand without turning it inside out, right? So in chemistry, two compounds that have like left and right chirality are mirror images of each other and might function completely differently. And this is, of course, him talking about, you know, his sort of internal conflict about you know who he feels like he is versus who he experiences himself as socially right and uh and the way that nobody is recognizing that you know he could be two things and then this goes on to be an important chemical characteristic of his meth that he cooks is that he's very good at managing the chirality of the meth um and so you could go into you could do a whole thing about chirality and breaking bad um so you could do a lecture right um, and you could you could have I mean, a good example of this, right, is like there's a scene in Moby Dick where Moby Dick gets canceled. Right. Which is where uh, where where which by what I mean is um, where the woke mob comes after him with spears. Pretty much. Yes. But but yeah, exactly. But no, it's more it's not. He doesn't get canceled when they actually stab him. Right. Moby Dick gets canceled when Ahab takes the gold coin. Right. And hammers the doubloon into the mast. Right. And it's it's supposed it's a gold coin. and It's the first person to spot Moby Dick, uh, you know, gets the gets the gold coin. And it's where we learn about Moby Dick, you know, what people know about Moby Dick, what they think about Moby Dick, everybody's fears. But the characteristic of that moment is that the gold coin doesn't mean the same thing to each person who's looking at it. It reflects back to them their own ideas of themselves that they brought on this voyage. Mm. Right. And so Moby oh, Dick becomes this. And so, yeah, so like this is why you study Melville, right? Because Moby Dick is sort of a transcendental signifier to an extent, right? <laughs> like and the gold coin represents the sort of reflecting back of seeing Moby Dick without Moby Dick actually being there, right? You have this object that's been taken that is that represents Moby Dick, but isn't Moby Dick. That is a reproducible object that has a utility, but the utility isn't related to what it means. And it's put on the mass and it reflects back to everybody what they think about themselves. And so like in this show, right, we have a situation where you know, Bill, the professor, he gives a Nazi salute and he gives a Nazi. salute. it's not even really a joke. It makes if you've read Ionesco, it makes perfect sense what he's talking about. Right. Which is that like the the like aesthetic. And even if you've read. Um, oh, who is it? Is it is it Benjamin again? The aesthetic qualities of fascism. Right. The notion that fascism is is an aestheticization of of governmental authority. Right. Mm. And the idea that that, you know, the symbols of fascism are uh given power by the state like the state utilizes them as a source of power but then they're also imbued by with power by the exercise that the state uses them for right and so he's you know heil hitler is a great example of like a particular sort of you know or the salute a gesture a word that might mean something different in different situations but in the context of a state that is pushing it it has a specific meaning Right. That's related to the government. Right. And, and and to the aesthetic quality of the government. And part of what the absurdists are doing is they're untangling this by showing the underlying absurdity of a lot of these signs and symbols. But in much the same way that that, you know, Nazi salute doesn't necessarily mean the same thing if it's not being done in the context of a Nazi party. You then take that gesture out and you nail it to the mast. Right. And now everybody in school is looking at it. And what is everybody thinking about? They're not thinking about Bill and his dead wife. They're thinking about what they're dealing with, 
right? right? Like there, I'm thinking about the fact that, oh, there's one of the big plot points in this show, which is not explored, is that there's a rash of anti-Semitic hate crimes and threats on this campus, right? Like that apparently is like the least important thing for any of these administrators to yeah, deal that, with. Yeah, that is really underplayed, well, sort of, I by mean, the way, like, said, to the point where I'd forgotten about it. until you we, said, we said that, and then I got to that part in the show, and it was, it was kind of soft-pedaled in the show. It was like someone made the point that these things are on the rise these days. So I think that I, th- I think they were not talking about the campus specifically. I think they were talking about, you know, uh, Charlottesville and like and and following, you know, that they that- do say that there was a record number of incidents at one point. At one point, a kid complains that a swastika was writ- drawn in his neighbor's well, room. That, OK, yeah, that uh, common you're, room. You're right. I forgot. So about I, that again, I'm overstating it a little bit because the point is that the show doesn't go into it. Right. The show doesn't give you enough information about the actual Nazis to know whether the kids are scared of the Nazis that they're living nearby, or whether they're scared of the Nazis in Charlottesville or whether they're scared of like the abstract idea of Nazis. Right. In the context of their experience of like, uh, you know, a broader critique of authoritarianism. Right. Like because, you know, there's Nazis and there's Nazis. Um, but yeah, exactly. And it's, it's not like- really it's not really gone gone into. But, you know, speaking of speaking of Benjamin, right, like the the idea of social media reproduction, you know, the work of <laughs> the work of the fascist salute <laughs> in the age of social media reproduction um, it is something that, you know, I don't know, bears bears some thinking about because these things are kind of like infinitely reproducible and they're they're reproducible without context. You know, and that's that because the 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 Nazi salute is not particularly offensive if, you know, if you consider it in context, uh, right, because it's meant as a it's meant as an illustration, you know, it's not meant as an enactment. And that's uh, and, right. uh, you know, and those are those are different things. Right. But you'd need to be pretty attentive to the nuances of what's going on and you need to have a, a great deal of knowledge in order to um you know in order to to do that right and that that's like um that's but it's the, also not your the thing about social media is that everything's limited you can't you can't provide the context right like there's only the object that gets posted the kids didn't hear about bill's dead wife when they saw the nazi salute Right. Like they didn't even hear the lecture. They didn't even go to the class. Right. Like most of them. So it's like so. But it's like they see the Nazi salute and they immediately import it into the context of what they're dealing with and the other stuff they see on social media. Right. Like which could be which could be the Aaron Sorkin speech. Right. And to their sort of and to. Yeah. And to to they're also sort of political norms. Right. Which are which are really. I don't know. I read a I read a New York Times opinion piece about this uh, that sort of took seriously took seriously the idea of people's um kind of aversion to quote unquote cancel culture. Um but as a you know as a kind of mourning of a loss of cultural authority and and sort of cultural cultural influence, right? And and you have a you know you remember we talk about Stanley Fish a lot on this. Um that guy that guy was running around doing stuff like giving Nazi salutes, right? Like no, I don't know that he actually did that. I'm not I'm not actually saying that, but he was he was super provocative if for an era that that kind of that kind of prized the the performance of of transgression 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I think there's a lot to criticize about uh, that performance of transgression, like who was allowed to do it, who wasn't allowed to do it, who was in on the joke, who was the butt of the joke. Like, you know, these are all all legitimate concerns. But if you come from a milieu where you're sort of rewarded, where you're sort of um, uh, 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 patted on the head for, you know, transgression and destabilization and deconstruction and, you know, all these things like the the way that like, you know, uh, the way that that scouts get merit badges, right? Like <laughs> professors yeah. got, got merit badges for, for this kind of like, um, simulacrum of bad behavior uh and then to sort of be in a in a situation where where a your cultural influences is um diminished you know partly because there's a new generation coming and you know partly because of of larger cultural shifts outside of uh, outside of the academy and outside of the kind of cyclical dialectic of generation after generation. And then, like, uh, and then, you know, you, you find yourself in a, in a milieu that's a lot more attentive to, uh, a lot more attentive to the harms that that kind of thing does to people. And that has a completely different set of, of shibboleths, you know, um, th- that uh, th- there is, you can understand that there's a that there's a kind of a sense of loss, you know that that goes with that, and like a, that that goes along with with experiencing that. And I'm not I'm not totally willing to just condemn all those people to the trash heap as as being like outdated and and you know canceled. They're they're humans with a point of view, with a subjectivity, you know, with a uh, a point of view on the world. And even if the world has kind of passed them by. Um, I don't know. They're still they're still there, and if you uh, if you prick them, do they not bleed? Um, the the if you if you TikTok them, you know, do they not lose their jobs? And that, Mark, yeah. Mark, did you do that? Uh, did you do that Korean ceremony with your kids? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, what you did it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, mean, I thought I, I was trying. I thought you, if you have more to do, you could go for it. I, I didn't mean to be super rude or anything. I just wanted. I thought the abrupt. We really, would be we fun. really, adhe- we really adhered to uh, the rigor and integrity of the process. You should. Right. <laughs> so, but like, I'm, I'm guessing that that your kids in that ceremony, they got the choice between like an electric guitar pick, a drumstick, a piano keyboard. A, uh, you know, like, it's just like, what kind of rock musician are you going to be? <laughs> yeah, we didn't put like, you know, um, uh, uh, avant-garde jazz on the table. And also War to the State was not an option. So, <laughs> okay, I admit it. We, we, we um, freaked the game a little bit. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know. So this is a legit thing that like. Oh, you actually want to talk about this? Okay, sure. I'm actually <laughs> curious because, okay, because 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 what Matt was just talking about, right, is this idea that these people have these real lives, like transgressive literature professors, is a total thing, right? And and like it, it is a tradition, and it's a tradition that is <laughs> it like is a not, Luke. It is a L E W K Luke. <laughs> And it is a tradition that is ha- going to have a lot of trouble continuing to survive in the social media environment because of the Melvillian doubloonery that takes place <laughs> with social media where everybody sees themselves in the isolated pieces of information rather than seeing the context of the person that's giving it at the time that it's being given. But – so the, the show doesn't go into this at all, right? The point that we're talking about is that like the show does not go into the deeper concerns, thoughts, feelings of the English professors – in this way, 
But it does go into it for the parents a little bit more, I think. And I was curious about because this ritual with the Korean kid is one of the few times that they actually talk about their hopes and aspirations and what they want. Right. In a way that isn't just sort of bemoaning that the world sucks. Right. Um, anybody in this show. So I, I guess if it's a real thing, I would like to learn a little bit like what does the show get right or wrong about it? Do, how does it feel to do it? Uh, what did you get from that scene that we would have missed? Let's see here. Um, it is uh, this the, the the ritual itself is open to interpretation, right? I think there are traditional objects that you're supposed to put out, and then people will play all around with the theme, right? You know, but uh, you know, what is you can you'll be shocked to hear that among professional um, class white collar job holding Korean Americans, um, you put out objects that. Uh, you know, lead to those types of jobs on there. Yes, you know, microphone for singer, certainly, but like, I'm sure like USB key was there for a computer programmer and, you know, other stuff like that. Um, it's, it is, uh, it, it's not meant to be taken like, you know, actually seriously and prophetically, right? But it is, uh, you know, I think to the point of what we're talking about here, it is a, a it is an earnest um, uh, display of hope and optimism in the future um and and also frankly of like setting high expectations <laughs> as well um and uh but the the the, 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 the i love that moment though of this outsider just crashing in and like his his pills right because he's just like so addled on various substances um spilling in and, and ruining the scene um that that seems to be in keeping with the show as well too, right? You know, there's this there's this idealism, and there's also like you know this uh, chicanery of like kind of rigging the game, and then you just have like you know chaos and like the vicissitudes and and, and ugliness of life that just come in and and, and kind of ruin things. So I really liked it. Um, I I I I I'm glad that that sort of ritual, that the particular uh, tr- cultural uh, trope, is getting more visibility. You know, hashtag representation matters. Um, uh, and I thought it, 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 there's there's a way to tie it in. Like you know, we're doing a lot of heavy lifting for the show here. Maybe that like, you know the show wasn't necessarily intending, um, but you know what? Hey, that's what we're here to do, right? Yeah. We're and Matt, of, what about making a Hamilton? Have you had that experience? Have you made a Hamilton? Oh God, I, I, <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> I, <laughs> I I decline to answer the question. <laughs> I've I Pete in a. <laughs> In a long teenagehood of doing after school theater, I made a, a variety of embarrassing performance art pieces based on uh great works of uh great works of literature. Speaking of great works of literature, we, we should end with something uh that is that is uh you know a great a great work of literature. So here in its entirety is the first book of Paradise Lost. Uh the, no, I'm I'm kidding. Um here, let me read. Uh, it's it's three short stanzas long. I'm I'm gonna read. Uh, Hope is the thing with feathers to uh, to end our um, uh, to end our our revels here. Our revels our revels now are ended. So here is uh, Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard. And sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. All right, we'll be.
back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. The storm is the patriarchy, man. The crumb is the bread industrial complex. The bird is delicious.